0: the screen you'll see in front of you that we are now studying the story of Abraham in this larger section of Genesis. We started that last week in Genesis chapter 12. Today we're going to continue Abraham's story, part two, if you will, in chapters 13 and 14. And I believe that primarily these two chapters proclaim two basic things. Firstly, these chapters proclaim that Abraham has been blessed, Now, if you remember last week, Abraham was promised blessings. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. There's three primary parts of the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to have a bunch of kids who will have kids who will have kids, so he'll have a huge family. He's going to get a land in which all those people that will one day grow into a nation can live, and that through those people from that land, blessings will flow to the whole world. So, the Abrahamic covenant which was confirmed to Abraham in our section from last week, consists of a promise to give him a big family, to put them in a land, and then to bless the whole world. If you remember the story from last week, though, because of famine, which God providentially brought into their story, they have to go down into Egypt because there's abundant water there, and therefore there's crops that are growing. When Abraham goes there with his wife, he tells her to say to Pharaoh, this is my brother, not my husband, because he was afraid that Pharaoh would kill Abraham and part of the family and then take Sarah to be his wife. Now, truly, Sarah was his sister, his half sister, so it was kind of only a half lie when he told his wife to say that he, Abraham, was her brother. But of course, it was at least a half lie and therefore, as we know, a whole lie. God then brought cursing upon Pharaoh's household and revealed to him that indeed these two people were married. And then rather than killing both of them, which Pharaoh held in his power to do, he releases them. But he released them, ironically, with even more abundance than that which with they came. And that's how chapter 13 opens up. And as I said to you last week, sometimes God shames us into repentance by punishing us. The Scriptures prove that to be true. Sometimes, however, God shames us into repentance by blessing us when we full well know that we deserve punishment. This is one of those cases. And I think as we will read together today in chapters 13 and 14, Abraham got the message that this God was so amazingly gracious and faithful that Abraham had no right to turn from God. So, the promises that God gave to Abraham at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12 should have confirmed Abraham's faith to the point that he obeyed God even whenever he faced danger. After all, how can you have a bunch of kids that will grow into a nation and bless the whole world if you're dead? But Abraham was so worried about his life that he was willing to lie and cause his family to lie and put all of them in jeopardy when instead he should have just trusted God. But now God gives him a second chance. And as we'll read together in chapters 13 and 14, God blesses them even more. So the first thing I want you to think about as a way of filtering through these many verses is what is God doing here in these chapters to bless His people? And then secondly, how then should we live? In other words, if we have been blessed by God like Abraham was, how then should Abraham have responded to people around him? and how should we respond to the world around us? Genesis has helped us as God's people, as it has been helping God's people for millennia now, to discern our world. Why is there sunlight abundantly, just like we need it, not too hot, not too cold? Why is there ample water, fresh water? Why is there rain? Why is there photosynthesis, How do the birds get fed? Why is there such abundance of beauty? Why has God made marriage? Why has God given us children? Why has God made the world such an environment that we can enjoy it abundantly? Well, He has done so so that we might enjoy Him. That's why He made everything, as we studied together in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we discerned that primarily those chapters are not teaching us scientific facts, although there is scientific data there. The primary thrust of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is not how God created so much, but the fact that He did create. In other words, rather than wrangling back and forth about how long it took and by what method He did it, we should be overwhelmed by the fact that He did it. And as we behold everything that we see around us, we should be overwhelmed with His beauty and His love because primarily what Genesis chapters 1 and 2 proclaim to us is that our God is effusively, we used that word as we went through those chapters, effusively or abundantly gracious. That's what we discern. Our God is effusively, never-endingly gracious. And His people, the first people, our first parents, should have resided under that effusive grace with great joy and fidelity, faithfulness. But of course, you know the story, they did not. And God, out of anger and frustration and, and hurt feelings, could have just vaporized them. But He didn't. Instead, He shows up and He showers them with even more grace because He promises them He'll fix all of it. So, in reality, sunshine and rain and diversity of biological life is is amazing. But all of that pales in comparison to the promise that he gave our first fallen, broken parents in Genesis chapter 3. And that is the most effusively gracious thing he could ever do was fix the problem. And of course, now. As New Covenant Christians, we can look back and we understand that the promise was that He would send His own Son, the second person of the Trinity, the express image of God to bless His people. So from the very beginning, do you see what God has been doing? He made this world, and He made you to enjoy Him. And then when it all went awry, He promised to fix it and He followed through on His plan. And as we have been discerning throughout this book so far, that's the primary theme, that God is going to come into the chaos, and He's going to fix it, and He's going to do it through a man named Abraham, and He's going to build for Abraham a family and he's going to do it miraculously because Abraham's wife can't have kids. And then through them, not only is he going to give them one heir, but he's going to bless the whole world through a huge nation. This is what our God does. He's constantly at work to display just how good He is. Perhaps the first theological truths you learned as a kid are the three omnis of God. God is omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. He's everywhere. God is omniscient. He knows everything. And God is omnipotent. He can do all things. I remember when I was like in second grade, I knew all the omnis and I thought I was really hot stuff. But there's another one that I want you to tuck away into your theological library, and that is that our God is omnibeneficent. He is all good. If there's a God who's all powerful, but you doubt his goodness, he would be hard to trust. You might do it simply out of slavish fear. If you have a God who knows all things but who is not all good, you might be impressed by His knowledge, but does He really care about you? If you have a God who is everywhere and has all power and knows all things but is not all good, again, you might fear Him with great dread, but can you really trust Him and, and does He love you? But you see, our God's knowledge and His power and His presence is always in harmony with His great goodness. And Genesis is a record of this over and over again. So, let's read now with these things in mind. That this world was created for Abraham to live in, that he might enjoy a God who cannot help but bless. But then he called this wandering pagan to be a blessing to others." So, let's read Abraham's story, and I want you to think about Abraham and yourself. How has God blessed you, and what is He calling you to be? And we'll take some time to discuss that in a few moments. This is God's Word. So, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with them, into the Negev. That's the southern portion just below Canaan. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever." I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So again, we are looking for how God had blessed Abraham and continued to do it and how he was calling Abraham to be a blessing to others. Chapter 14 has similar thoughts. Let's read together. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, that would be a good name for an offspring of yours if you'd like, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Berah, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, and all these joined forces in the valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Kameim and Zuzim and Ham and Imim and shavacharathim and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as follows El Paran on the borders of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. And defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in the Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal king of Goem, Amraphel king of Shinar, and Ariok king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anur. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought up bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshcol and Mamre also take their share. This is God's Word. I appreciate your attention. I feel like it's important for us to read all of the verses. So, as I've said to you many times throughout this book so far, the point that we are to take away from these stories is the main thrust of the story. And I think the main thrust of these stories is that Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. And as you've already rehearsed today, that's pretty surprising. After all, God had made Abraham promises, and Abraham had doubted those promises and made disastrous choices. And yet, rather truly than punishing Abraham, He blessed him. And that's where we find the beginning of Genesis chapter 13 he has even more than he had before. Why is God doing that? Well, God's doing that because he's keeping his promises to our first fallen mother. Eve and her hopelessness was promised by the God of creation, who now became a covenant-keeping God, that he would not turn his back on his creation, The one who had effusively and abundantly blessed his people from the very beginning promised he would not stop. In fact, everything that he had made was pretty fascinating, but he promised he would top it. That's why Abraham gets blessed even after his sin. God is showing that he's going to top everything he had already done because he's going to bring the seed around who will bring blessings in the midst of all the cursing. So, how does this story show us that God has blessed Abraham? And that's the first thing we're going to look at today, the Lord has abundantly blessed His people. We see it in verse 2 already. Abraham gets out of Egypt alive, which in and of itself is a blessing, and he comes away with all kinds of stuff, more cattle, more silver, more gold, In fact, he is so rich now, and his family member Lot, his nephew, is so rich that they can't live together in the same area. Now, there were other peoples around them. That may be why things are mentioned there in verse 7, these other people groups. There's other peoples around them that kind of pinched them in a little bit, but they couldn't live together anymore because they had so much stuff. And I think perhaps in God's great providence, He allowed this to happen on purpose He wanted Abram to be a blessing to others, but he also wanted Abram himself to receive great blessing. In just a moment, we'll talk about Abram responded to this, but we see Lot going eastward. But then God says to Abram, look all around you. I'm going to give you everything that you see. And then Abram walks throughout the land. He's commanded to do so. It's kind of like his way of going into the different regions of Canaan and appropriating it for himself. That's going to be mine, and that's going to be mine, and that's going to be mine. All of this is going to be mine because God promised me. What's God doing? Well, God's keeping His promises, which is what God always does. If you belong to Christ, and I know most of your stories well enough to know that most of you do, just think about your own. There are times along the way where great testing came, right? Just like Abraham experienced last week in chapter 12, where your faith is tested, where the genuineness, the the fabric of who you are is brought into question. But what does God always do? When you're faithful to respond well to the testing, or when you're not faithful to respond well to the testing, what does God typically do? He just keeps blessing you. Why does He do that? Because that's who He is. He cannot help but be that way. And sometimes, as I've already mentioned, when He punishes you, you are brought to confession and repentance, and you feel bad for what you've done, and you purpose to be a different person. But isn't it true in your story, if you're being honest in review of your story, that sometimes what He's done in the midst of your unfaithfulness is He's blessed you even more? And that's kind of an overwhelming urge that is created within you to just keep serving Him, and that's what He did in Abraham's case. And I think Abraham needed this at the beginning. Think about that. He calls Abram out of paganism. We know this from the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12. Abraham was not a worshiper of the one true God. Joshua, as we looked at last week, talked about that later when, Egypt, when Israel actually went into the land to conquer it after coming out of exile in Egypt. Abraham was not a worshiper of the one true God. But Abraham had to be tested to see what was really in him. But in the testing, God was really proving himself. He was proving what was in Abraham's heart, but God was really proving to Abraham what was in his heart, God's heart. When somebody makes you a promise, we have become just jaded enough that we're not really sure if we can trust them. You know, if some relative stranger came up to you and said, I'm going to give you abundant blessing for the rest of your life, you would look at them relatively skeptically. In fact, we have a hard time trusting even the people that are closest to us because even those people fail us consistently, husbands, wives, children, friends. We, we long for people to be around us who will not fail us, who are consistently marked by always keeping their word. But even those who have the best of intentions don't always do that, right? The most tender husband can be mean in a given moment. The most respectful wife can lash out in fear and anger and usurping her husband. The most tender and faithful parent can be harsh and mean. The deepest of friendships can come apart at the seams because we are sinful. But this God that Abram did not know desired to prove himself to Abram, that even when Abram was unfaithful, God would still keep all the promises. You see, the covenant that God promised Abraham back at the beginning of chapter 12 was not a bilateral covenant. God did not say to him, if you'll do this, I'll do this. Now, there are examples of that in the Bible, but that's not what this one's like. The Abrahamic covenant, which consists, once again, of making a family, giving them a land, and promising to bless the whole world, that was what we call a unilateral covenant. It was just God promising. In fact, next week as we study Genesis chapter 15, you're going to see that really, really clearly. God says, I'm going to do it. But even whenever we're doing well, We still wonder if people will keep their word to us, but what if we don't do well? What if you are not faithful? What if you mess people over? What if you screw people? What if you don't keep your word? What if you are not the kind of person that is fit to be blessed? And that's often what we're like, if not all the time, right? In those moments, you certainly don't expect people to bless you in return. But you see, the gods that Abram had worshipped before, the gods of the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the gods of the land, they were fickle. Now, of course, they were not true gods. They were concocted out of thin air. But those gods that all of Abraham's neighbors worshipped, they were capricious. You do for me, I'll do for you. In fact, it got to the point in the ancient Near East that there were certain people who would actually sacrifice their children in the fire to appease the wrath of their made-up gods. That's how bad it got. And you know what Abram needed to be proved? You know what God wanted to prove to Abram? I am nothing like anything you've even ever imagined. And that's what he did. And then in Genesis chapter 14, what does God continue to do? He just continues to bless him more and more. There's something that's a bit mysterious here that we just don't have a lot of time to spend on today, and Moses, the writer of this section of Scripture, doesn't really go into a lot of detail. But after Abram goes on this rescue mission with his large group of men, this gives you an idea of how rich Abram had become, because as we see in verse 14 of chapter 14, he has 318 people that were trained that were in his house. That means there were a lot more probably that weren't trained. Abram had a lot of people he was responsible for. It was like a tribe. After he comes back from his rescue mission, he runs into these two kings, one the king of Sodom. We've already seen that this is an evil guy, and one the king of Salem. A lot of theologians believe that this was one of the first kings of Jerusalem. He was the king of peace. Salem comes from the Hebrew word shalom, so he was the king of peace peace. He was the king of Jerusalem, the place of peace. That's important because this king of peace from the environs of Jerusalem, who is both a king and a priest, comes out to bless Abraham. He is the priest of God Most High, El El Yon, the one who is higher than any other god. There is none in comparison to him. And he says to him, I, the priest of El Elyon, bless you on behalf of the God Most High. This one has blessed you and will continue to bless you. Later on in Psalm 110, which incidentally is the most widely referenced psalm in our New Testament, the psalmist says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments, from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, David wrote this, and he wrote this in reference to what it was like to be the king of Israel. But he's saying subtly Not only are the rulers of Israel to come from the royal line and to be kingly, they're also to be priest-like. Now, if you know anything about the history of Israel as a nation, you had kings and you had priests, and they were two very distinct people groups, if you will. But David understood that at least in one way, he was to be priest-like. He was to intercede for his people with God, which is basically what a priest does, And in this depiction of the ideal king, he says, not only am I to rule well, I'm to represent my people to God well. And he likens his kingship to Melchizedek's kingship. Now, Melchizedek is kind of this shadowy figure. It's interesting. He just kind of comes out of nowhere here in Genesis chapter 14. If you know the references in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Hebrews, We know that Jesus, our Savior, is likened to Melchizedek. Yes, He's the son of David and therefore has a right to the royal throne, but He's more than that. He is the priest-king. He's different than any other king that had ever ruled in Israel because He truly was a priest. And so, what the writer of Hebrews says is that Jesus is better than any king you've ever had, and He's better than any priest you've ever had because He combines the office of king and priest. He's a perfect king because He will rule over His people in perfect holiness, something that David never did, much the opposite. Not only that, He'll be a perfect priest, who will represent his people perfectly, who can plead with God. And you see, he's better than all the priests of Israel because he doesn't have to sacrifice for himself so that God will hear him. That's what all the priests of Israel had always had to do. They had to sacrifice for themselves first so they would be clean in God's sight so then they could represent the people. Jesus wasn't like that. He himself was perfect. In fact, he laid his own life down. So, he became both the priest and the sacrifice to represent and atone for God's people. And the writer of Hebrews likens Jesus, our Savior, to Melchizedek, who was both king and priest, but Jesus even transcends that. And really, if Genesis is about Jesus, and I would contend with you with great confidence that that's what Genesis is about. Genesis is about Jesus. What did Adam and Eve need? They needed rescue. By what means would rescue come? Jesus. Genesis is about Jesus. Why did God choose Abram out of paganism? Why did he bless him even when Abram turned from him? Why? Because of Jesus why did the nation of Israel need to become just that, a nation? Why? So that Jesus would come. The third part of the Abrahamic covenant where God said to Abram, not only am I going to make you a family and put you in a land, but you're going to bless the whole world. What would that look like? Jesus. And in some way or another, this person, this king of peace, Melchizedek, prefigured Jesus. In fact, Some theologians believe that in some way or another, this might be sort of a prehistoric, a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus. I don't think that's true. But I think in one way or another, He certainly prefigures Jesus. He's a different kind of king. He's a different kind of priest. He's special. And perhaps He shows up out of the blue and is never seen again to show just how important He was because our attention is drawn to Him. We're intrigued by Him. and he comes to bless Abram. So you see what God's doing? In Genesis 13, what does God do after Abram's sin in Genesis 12? He blesses him abundantly. Why? To prove himself. And then after Abram does what he's supposed to do in Genesis 14, which we'll talk about in just a moment, you know what God does? He sends this amazing king that there's never been anyone quite like him, and through his lips he blesses Abram again. You see what God's doing? All over the place, God's just blessing him. And you see, that's what grace is. If you were to say to the average American today, where in the Bible can you find the verse, God helps those who help themselves? They'd scratch their head and they would say like, I don't know, like Hezekiah 4 or 3 Peter 6 or something like that. I mean, they would try to come up with something really clever. Do you know where that is in the Bible? It's not. you know why? Because it's antithetical to the message of the Bible. I've already said to you that the message of Genesis is Jesus. You know what the message of the Bible is? It's just Jesus. That's it. When Andy said to you earlier today that we kind of say the same thing all the time, we do. Hopefully we say it in kind of different, intriguing ways, but it's always kind of the same thing, right? Because you know what you need? You need Jesus. Where do we learn about him? Where do we see our need for him and the provision of him? Where? In the Bible, everywhere. You see, the grand theme of the Bible is that God has purposed to redeem his people through his son. That's the theme of the Bible. Jesus is the theme of the Bible. And therefore, as we read about how God has abundantly blessed his people, all of this really is about Abram bling a blessing to the nations, and that's going to come in his son. And that's how God has blessed us. But what do we do with this? The Lord has abundantly blessed his people, but how do we respond? We respond by being a blessing to others. So, the Lord has abundantly blessed His people so that they might reflect His glory as they bless others. Now, I've articulated that second point very specifically on purpose. You see, it's possible to be very philanthropic. It's possible to be somewhat giving, beneficent, but it's also very possible to do these things in the wrong ways. Most of us, Are not naturally givers. It's just not in most of us naturally. Most of us are relatively self seeking. We're naturally that way. After Adam and Eve, we all became that way. That's what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with. You see, Satan was very bent in on himself. God has made every rational being with eyes upward looking at him in awe of him. But you know what sin does? Sin curves us inward. Whereas we were created to be worshipers of the one true God and to be in awe of Him and to enjoy His effusive grace, sin bends us inward and we worship self. Satan was passionately bent on self-worship. And you know what he tempted Adam and Eve with? The same thing. And you know what every offspring since has been infected with? Curved in self-worship. What did Abraham do last week in Genesis chapter 12? He tells his wife to lie, puts her in danger, and himself in danger, and all of them in danger. You know who Abraham was really worshiping? Himself. He wasn't looking out for anybody but himself. And it almost got all of them killed. Because God never changes His promises, He rescues Abraham out of that. And you know what Abraham began to learn? He began to learn that this God who so abundantly blesses is worth looking up at, worth considering, worth emulating, worth enjoying, worth patterning his life after. And that's what he began to do. And most of us are like that. Most of us are curved in on ourselves. Some people are not necessarily naturally like that. There's there's a few people here in this room that are naturally givers. But you know what can be very twisted about the people who are the rare givers? You know what? They're often the kind of people that give just so they can get. And if you're a giver and you're being honest, you know that's true. Often you give so people will give back to you. But you know what the gospel does? You know what the message of the Bible, Jesus, does for us? It helps people who are not natural givers to begin giving. It helps people who are natural givers but give so they can get to just give whether they get or not. You see, if we are infected with curved-in, self-seeking worship, what the gospel does is it shows us that Jesus did exactly the opposite. You know why? Because He and His Father had been doing exactly the opposite from the very beginning. And you know what they do? They turn all of that on its head, and they rescue non-givers, and they rescue twisted givers to becoming Christ-like givers. The Lord has abundantly blessed His people that they might bless others around them, therefore reflecting God's glory. How did Abram first do this? Well, back in chapter 13, he gives Lot first choice. I've always been struck with that ever since I was a kid. Because Abram was the one who was given the promises. It wasn't Lot. Lot was just riding Abram's coattails. And you'd think that Abram would say, okay, Lot, God's given me all this stuff around me. I've carved out a really special place for you. That's where you're going to go. And Lot should have been really happy with that. But you know what he did instead? He said, Lot, you choose first. Wouldn't you love it if your children did that? Like, like we can make our kids do that in a moment of, like, teaching, like, where they're arguing over a Lego piece or the last granola bar or whatever. You can challenge them with, like, this very pious statement, who would like to be the giver, right? And, And one of them will do it just so that you think they're a better kid. But they're not doing it for the right reason, right? But what if your children came to you and said, mother or father, of course, they never speak to you like that, but we're just being, you know, kind of formal for a minute, mother or father, um, there is one granola bar left, and and I would love this granola bar. In fact, I've been dreaming about this granola bar, but my my young sibling would love this granola bar, and I would just like you and all the hosts of heaven to know that I'm giving this granola bar to my sibling. I mean, you would be overwhelmed and you would weep, right? This is what Abram did. You know what I think happened here? I think in chapter 12, he doubted God's blessings, and therefore it led to his deceit. He wasn't sure if God would really follow through on his promises, so he became a self-protector. He was curved inward still. Now, I still don't think Abram is converted to Genesis chapter 15, which we'll see next week. I think I can prove that to you next week. This is kind of pre-conversion stuff going on in Abram's heart. God is drawing him to himself. But by chapter 13, he's starting to believe You know this God, this God that called me out of the blue, this God who blessed me even whenever I turned from Him, this God who kept His promises even when I doubted Him, you know what? That's pretty amazing. Maybe I should be like that. Hey, we're having strife here among our herdsmen. You know what, Lot? God, this God who called me, keeps blessing me. I'm going to bless you. That's what He did. He became a reflector of the glory of God. And even here, if Abram is not yet a true worshiper with a transformed heart, he's still an image bearer, and maybe in some way the image is starting to get restored. Now, theologically, that's sticky. I know that. We are not born again until we're born again. New birth or regeneration, theologically speaking, is an instantaneous thing. And I guess we can say conversion is as well. We're converted in a moment. We, we pass from death to life. We go from rebel to worshiper. But conversion from our point of view can seem like a process, right? You see this with your kids. They come to faith over time. If you were converted as an adult, you saw this. You considered the claims of Christ. You turned from the old lifestyle to the new. And even though that happens in a moment from God's perspective, it seems like it takes time. That's why, by and large, you cannot go knock on someone's door, give them a canned gospel message, and then all of a sudden they're just going to come to Jesus and be a great worshiper. That's not typically how this works. It takes time to expose people to the truths of God, or they can turn from their old idols to the one true God. And that's what's happening in Abram's heart. He's turning from curved-in self-worship to now beginning to have that image restored, if I can be a little bit theologically loose for just a moment, because I know you can't really obey God with all of your heart until you're born again. So, if you're really theologically precise, don't come argue with me afterwards. I know that. But there's some sort of pre-conversion thing going on in Abram's heart here. He's different here in chapter 13, and he gives Lot the choice. It's interesting here, just incidentally, we won't develop this today, but, but Lot chooses to go eastward, which may be sort of a subtle reference back to Genesis chapter 3 when When Adam and Eve have to leave the garden, they go eastward. They're leaving holy places for less holy places. Lot chooses less holy things here. We'll learn more about him later on in Abraham's story. In chapter 14, how is Abraham a blessing? Probably wise for us to talk about these kings for just a moment because it makes up the bulk of this chapter. There's a confederation of kings from Iraq and Iran and modern-day Turkey and they're in charge, and they've subjugated these kingdoms around the Dead Sea near Canaan. But the kingdoms around the Dead Sea get really upset, and they try to rebel. So, the kingdoms of Iran and Iraq and Turkey band back together and come down, and they conquer them. And now they're not just going to subjugate them, they're going to take a lot of their stuff. Well, because Lot had gone towards Sodom, they catch Lot up, and they take him and all of his possessions away. Abram is informed about this by somebody who gets away from the raid, and Abram takes his partners and goes after his nephew. Interestingly, he's not irritated with Lot, even after he gave him first choice. He could have said, Well, Lot, I gave you the choice. You had the chance to get whatever you wanted. You were selfish. You took the thing that looked the best. And in fact, what you did was really unwise, and you put yourself in a situation where you got yourself in trouble because you lived among all the sinful people, Sodom and Gomorrah, and now these are just your just rewards. And you're just going to have to deal with it. That's how we are sometimes, right? We have a very technical word for this in evangelical jargon. We call it boundaries, right? In fact, there was a book written about this some time ago. And so we have boundaries to people. And so we'll say to people, you know, you've screwed me, and the best thing for you is just to go learn your lesson. I'm going to leave you to God, and He'll take care of you. But, but Abram didn't really respond like that here. Now, I'm certain that he was pretty frustrated with Lot at times, especially as he heard reports of how Lot was beginning to live, and again, we'll see this more further on. You know what he did? He didn't question. He didn't go back and forth, according to the text. He just got his people and went after them quickly, devised a pretty clever plan, and won his people back. Now, these would not have been massive nations. They wouldn't have been huge kingdoms with huge armies. These would have been like little tribes. Abram had 318 men, and they were probably much smaller than these confederation of kings put together, but they came at night by surprise under God's power, and they won their people back. Abram put himself at risk here. You know what Abram's beginning to do, as we've already talked about? He's beginning to show what the one true effusively gracious God is like. We're going to see this more next week, but isn't that the message of the cross? Didn't the second person of the Trinity put himself at great risk for us? You see, Abram had to learn back in chapter 12 that God would always keep his promises, and he didn't need Abram to try to figure it out. He just needed Abraham to obey. He did Abraham to do what was right, and God would take care of everything. You know, that's what Abraham does here. He puts himself at risk. You see, his life was at much greater risk here than it was back in chapter 12. He went to war here. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came to this fallen world full of demonic opposition and went to war against sin and put himself at risk, and it cost him his life. Why? Why? Because that was God's promise. He would send a redeemer. That's grace. Grace is giving another what they need, even if it costs you dearly. It's hard to live like that, isn't it? It's hard to be that as a husband. It's hard to be that as a mom. It's hard to be that as a friend. But we're called to that. We're called to lay our lives on the line, even when, or perhaps especially when it's going to cost us. I know that's hard, but that's the call of God, the effusive, gracious creator of all things, the one who promises and carries out redemption. That's his call on us. And you see, when we learn to live like that, we image forth his great glory. We reflect how great He is to the world around us, and then people see, and they know, and they're intrigued, and God's people grow, and they enjoy Him as we live together in this way. Turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, two of Jesus' close-knit disciples, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And he already knew the answer, but he wanted them to articulate it. And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. We want to be special princes. Not like Peter or Matthew or Judas. We want to be special Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He's saying to them, I'm going to suffer and so are you. You don't really know what you're talking about. So hang in there. Verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man, He Himself, the second person of the Trinity, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus did not come to be adored in his first advent. Jesus came to rescue rebels. Turn with me, if you will, please, to Philippians chapter 2. In this passage, Paul caused the people in Philippi to pattern their lives after Jesus, their Savior, who had given himself for them. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus came and emptied Himself to bless us, just like He had done from the very beginning. What is His call upon our lives? It's the same, to pour ourselves out for other people. I'm going to put an image on the screen in front of you. You may not be able to see it super well, um, but this is the fountain that's in Fountain Square in Cincinnati. How many of you have ever been there? We've got some Cincinnati people here, right? Go Cincinnati. Queen City, right? Um, this is where I got engaged. I got engaged in a, in a horse carriage right down by, by Fountain Square. It's a special place for us. But if you've ever been to Fountain Square in Cincinnati, it's great. There's restaurants. and In the winter, they turn the fountain off, and you can ice skate and all kinds of stuff. They always turn it on on opening day for the Reds. It's really important for us from Cincinnati. But it's beautiful. And... Um, and you have this this woman, and she has uh, rain coming out of, well, fountain, water coming out of her hands. And then it falls down on these various other things in the fountain, which spills out into other things. So, it's constantly cascading to other pieces and structures within the fountain. It's to represent that Cincinnati's right on the river and it's enjoying the abundance of the water from the river and agriculture and manufacturing and, and recreation and that kind of stuff. But it shows that, that the water flows and it flows outward and outward and outward and it blesses. That's how God is. God is the source of all grace. And he spills it down on you. Why? So you can spill. Spill it out on other people and then you train other people to spill it out on other people and I love to watch that in you. I love to watch you fix meals for people who have babies who are sick. I love to watch you help pay people's mortgages whenever the funds are thin. I love to watch husbands learn to love their wives selflessly. I love to watch mothers give themselves every moment of every day for their needy children. I love to see these things in you, and I'm so grateful. You you know what? You guys are known for this. this. This is who the Spirit is making you to be, just like Abram. And it's such a pleasure to be a part of shepherding you through this. But you know what? There's a long way to go, right? There's a long way to go. Because when will we measure up to the one who never stops pouring out the blessing? When will that be? and we die, right? And then we'll still enjoy His blessing for all of eternity. So I promise you, not only will God be glorified as you spill out and reflect the blessings to other people, but it's the best way to live. One of my favorite artists is James Taylor. In fact, he was just in town last Sunday night. Whitney and I went. It was great. We were the youngest people there. Um, But it was cool. Uh, Everybody was a little older than us because he was super popular in the 70s before We were even born, but we still like him. Our parents and siblings and stuff listened to him, so we did too. Uh, One of his really well-known songs is Shower the People, right? So anybody like under 40, you know, you probably don't know this song, but if you're above 40, you know the song because it's a great song. Here's some of the lyrics from the song. You can run, but you cannot hide. This is widely known. Tell me what you plan to do with your foolish pride when you're all by yourself alone. Once you tell somebody the way that you feel, you can feel it beginning to ease I think it's true what they say about the squeaky wheel always getting the grease. Better to shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. You know what? James Taylor is not a Christian. But as an image bearer, he understands at least in part what it's like to live a life that blesses other people. That's how I want us to live. So, the Lord has abundantly blessed his people so that they, so that we, might reflect his glory as we bless other people. Let me give you one more illustration. Maybe this will resonate with you and we'll quit today. I say to you from time to time that I want you to have your antenna up. I want you to pay attention to your environment. I want you to sense when there are needs around you, and that I want you to go after them. I want you to be poised, if you will, to go meet needs. I'm going to give you another illustration from the world of bugs, Okay? So, usually I'm talking about insects when I'm talking about, you know, antenna. I'm going to talk about arachnids for just a minute. Spiders. Now, I know spiders have a bad rap. Like, whenever you see a spider, you just want to kill it. But there's nice spiders, right? Like Peter Parker. For you, for you non-superhero people, Peter Parker, Spider-Man. He's a nice spider, right? Unless you're bad, then he's mean. Uh, Charlotte's Web. Charlotte was a nice spider. So, just forget the fact that spiders are ugly and mean and you want to kill them all the time. And just think that there could be something good come out of the illustration of a spider. So you know why a spider builds a web, right? A spider builds a web so that it can catch stuff. builds a web so it can catch stuff, so it can eat stuff, right? That's how God made them. So they build a web in their little corner of the world. And whenever something lands on that web, an insect, a a moth, something like that, then that spider will sense the uh, movement, the disturbance in the web. It will rush to it, bite it, and kill it, and then wrap it up and eat it at some point. So, remember, we're talking about the good element of this for just a moment, so you don't lose me. We all have a little corner of the world, don't we? You're not responsible for other corners of the world, not responsible for other parts of Ohio or the nation or the globe, but you are responsible for yours. Your corner of the globe might include a spouse and some children, some friends, certainly includes this church family at the very least. Your corner of the world gets disturbed from time to time with needs. I want you to be the kind of people that are so sensitive to your corner of the world that you're poised and ready to respond. And this is where the illustration falls apart, right? Not to go after it and consume it for yourself, but to be a blessing to those who desperately need it. You see, as I said earlier, most of us are not naturally that way. And even those who are naturally somewhat responsive to the world often do it for the wrong reasons. But as we consider the gospel of Jesus, And we consider the effusive grace of our creating and redeeming God. That's what He was like. So what's God calling us to today? To to enjoy His blessing and then to be poised and ready to reflect His glory by being a blessing to the world around us. I'm so thankful that you do that consistently. And I want to affirm you in that. But there's a long way to go. And there's so many more people to bless in our corner of the world. So may God be gracious to cause us to rest in His abundant blessing, and may He empower us and grant us grace to be a blessing to other people.